And I just got up from a nap, so if I sound a little grouchy and a little about that, I'm, I apologize. I should be wide-eyed and happy and encouraged, and I am. Um, but those are just some of the things that we deal with. Uh, a large amount of our pastoral time is truly spent in being creative about space and how to do that. So, so anyway, those are just some thoughts I have. We have our Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 1. I don't know if I said that or said that accurately, but we're going to be specifically looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 15. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Now, that's uh, uh, the text that we're going to be developing here tonight. Pastor Tim already mentioned that we're going to be beginning a series on the holiness of God and its implications for our church. And uh, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And I know Pastor Mike is going to develop a portion of that. Pastor Steve's going to come and develop a portion of that in relationship to uh, all of the, the challenges that uh, media sort of lays at our feet as parents and as church folk. And he's going to give us some help in relationship to how we practically can navigate, making sure those technological opportunities that we do have are kept in their proper places in our own lives personally and in our homes. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Pastor Mike's going to develop more of a philosophy uh, in relationship to uh, why we do what we do. And uh, tonight my task is to develop a theology, and uh, we'll be looking at that here together. So, so you can't study the holiness of God without being thoroughly challenged. And uh, we don't want you to be um, discouraged. That can be a result of studying the holiness of God. But... No, if that's your, the result in your heart and life, I'm hopefully going to point out to you that you haven't quite apprehended the holiness of God as he intended you to apprehend it. If, if, if the holiness of God is a discouraging thing to you. Uh, so we'll see that tonight, and uh, we'll marvel at uh, the glory and majesty of the holiness of God. And like Isaiah of old, we will desire it uh, very much to be a part of our own life. And uh, I know by God's grace, it progressively will become that. So in a, a social media world, culture consumption is at an all-time high. In lieu of the fact that culture is ever-shifting, and its products, we are told by some, are morally neutral, how do I effectively live out the Christian faith in a way that pleases God? That's the question that we're going to apply our hearts to. How do I effectively accomplish as well the mission that God has placed me on this earth to do and still remain culturally competent? It's sort of on the other side of, of the question. So tonight we start a series on the Christian and modern culture. You don't have to be at grace long before you hear pastor's instruction that our theology our philosophy of ministry, and really our philosophy of life, and our practice in ministry and our practice in life must progressively become more and more consistent. If those are words that are a little bit, of a little bit confusing to you, what I want you to do is to think of an illustration of a building. I want you to think of a building's foundation as theology, 
as theology. And as important as a foundation is to a building, so too is our theology in relationship to Christian living. The walls and built-in features of that building are our philosophy. Uh, these are sort of how we have understood the, the limits of our foundation and we have crafted walls within the limits of that foundation. Uh, and, and we have connected the two. We can't go beyond the foundation and we, we certainly want to, to, to use the full orb uh, 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 boundaries that the foundation has, has laid out for us. So think of the walls as philosophy uh, with all the built-in features. And then the colors, the decorations, the inhabitants, and functions of the rooms. This is our practice. This is our practice. And all of these things within church life are, are, are never always perfectly consistent. Can we just confess that? But the blue dot on the horizon and the goal for any, any leadership worth its salt in a local church is to try to have these three ideas as consistent as possibly they can be. Uh, and, and so it requires some things of leadership. It requires some things of those of you who are sitting before me listening to what I have to say tonight. Um, let me give you a, 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 a real-life illustration. Um, we have been having leadership meetings on Wednesday nights where pastor has gathered the deacons and elders together, and he has been going through the PowerPoint. He's giving us opportunity to change that. Uh, and... Uh, uh, this past Wednesday, Quan, I don't know if you know Quan, he's sitting back there, raise your hand, Quan, in the, in the, in the, in the booth. Quan made a philosophical statement about the building. Um, he said this, it must demonstrate that those who attend here truly care about God. Is that what you said, Quan, kind of mostly, the members, that when we build this building... Uh, this is a philosophic statement. It has to be clear that when people walk in here uh, that they really understand, wow, the people who are members here must really care a lot about God. No. Uh, I think that's a, a wonderful philosophical truth. And why it's, so real, and why it's truly impeccable or, or, or hard to argue against is because it rests upon a strong theology. It's a, it's a very strong theology. The theology that's being expressed there is that God is the most important thing in all the universe. And he absolutely matters. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, so, so the philosophy built off of that, obviously within the guardrails of what we're able to do, Quan uh, expressed, I think, quite accurately. Um, and therefore, um, our practice then as leaders become we need to sacrifice uh, to build a building that demonstrates to our community that we care a lot about God. And uh, we leaders have been thinking a lot about what this practically means in our own life uh, and uh, going forward. So that's sort of a real-life uh, situation that helps us to understand the relationship between theology, philosophy, and practice. Um, so we can say this. Everything in a Christian's life starts with theology. If you're taking notes, you want to write that down because that, that, that is so profound. <laughs> Anybody can come up with that statement. But it's true. It's true. Everything in a Christian's life 
begins with theology. What has God said concerning himself? God is the center of all things, not you and not me. God is not the one responsible to change. I must do the changing. You must do the changing. Theology demands that we progressively, I love that term, uh, we, by God's grace while I'm here, we'll never preach the idea that these things will ever be ours in absolute perfection. So if you're one year old in the Lord or if you're 30 years old in the Lord, know that all God asks you to do is take another step uh, along the lines of what I'm challenging you with tonight. Okay, so can everybody take a deep breath? All right, and nobody's asking anybody to be perfect. Uh, but I am, I am, really, and this is not debatable, I am asking you to take another step. And I believe that's what God's will is for your life. And I think I can make a, a strong case from the Word of God in relationship to that. Um, so the question progressively moves from what do I think, what do I like, what do I want, Two, what does God like? What does God think? What does God want? And in the areas where God has not clearly communicated what he likes, thinks, or wants, he leaves us with the guidance of wisdom. And oh, by the way, those of you who know the book of Proverbs, what is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. It still starts with a disposition of awe and reverence, and at some level, terror, with the truth that we're dealing with the thrice holy God. And we will stand in account one day. So even wisdom issues, so-called, are still wrapped in a vibrant, high theology. High theology. Um, so our proposition is simple tonight. Are you ready? Consume knowledge of God, not culture. Consume the knowledge of God and not culture. And uh, that's our goal tonight. That's not very profound either, really hard to dream up. But that's the proposition uh, tonight as we think of the theology of of, of dealing with our modern culture. So I, what I'd like to do uh, just quickly in the next few minutes is uh, to organize our thoughts by making, first of all, some further remarks about theology. I'd like to do that. Secondly, uh, I want to make a remark or a few remarks about God himself, the subject of theology proper. And uh, then I would like to uh, make a few comments concerning what we understand to be God's governing attribute. And uh, uh, we'll understand what that is here in a few minutes. So those simple three little things, a few comments about theology, a few comments about God, and a few comments about what is God's governing attribute. God's governing attribute. So first of all, tonight, we have before us First uh, Peter chapter 1. Uh, and this is what I want us to take away about theology. The study of God is the most practical of all studies. I would like you to write that down. The study of theology is the most practical 
of all studies. Uh, we have it here. We have uh, the rationale for Peter dealing with, in verse 14, a conformity to the world problem. He's dealing with a behavior problem, potentially. A very practical issue in verse number 15. And in verse number 17, he's dealing with an imminently practical concern, your conduct. Your conduct. And what does he say? He says the most practical thing he can in relation to your behavior, your conduct, and the way we are constantly struggling with conforming to our old lusts. He says, be holy, for God is holy. He introduces the highest theological truth that is witnessed to in all of the Bible. I'll just put it that way. Theology is the most practical study, at least according to Peter. You know, some people will say, oh, theology is not very practical. I don't like studying theology. You know, I would rather pick up all these self-help books. And I'm not saying all those self-help books are bad. Uh, some of them are. Uh, what we're looking for are self-help books that begin with what we're talking about. But what Peter says is, no, theology is the most practical of all studies. It is. Uh, we could put it in these terms. How do you become the best? You pick the human relationship that you're interested in right now. I see Christy. She's a mom and she's a wife, uh, a daughter, a um, the rest of us, we all have relationships. I'm a father, I'm a son, and I'm a husband. How do I become a, a, a better father, son, and husband? According to uh, the concepts found here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Well, you know what the most practical thing I can do is? What's that, Ron? Fear the Lord. That's right. Be a good theologian. The best son is the best theologian. The best husband is the best theologian. The best wife is the best theologian. Kids, yes. I know they're not in here. See, that's why I wanted them in here. Kids, the best child is the child who has discovered truth concerning the nature and purpose of God and is apprehending it the way God wants him to apprehend it. So do you want to become better in your human relationships? Become a better theologian. Practice, know theology, and practice theology in a way that God has intended it to be known and practiced. So theology is the most practical of all studies. I'll just leave it at that. And uh, you guys can, probably all kinds of practical applications. Um, but I think the first and foremost one is, uh, you, you know, you have a lifetime to get to know God. I would recommend knowing God. 
Uh, certainly one of the things, for example, that a child must get to know is he, he's got he's to figure out how to honor and obey his parents. If he gets to 18 years old and he still doesn't know how to honor and obey his parents on their terms, he's missed the whole point of being a kid. He blew it. Right? That's Ephesians 6. But what's, what, what sort of undergirds that is that it's in Christ that the child needs to develop that understanding. He needs to know something about himself before Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus himself who becomes the enabler for that child to be successful as a child. Dad, uh, husbands, you have essentially one task that's been highlighted. Uh, you, you, you've got to become a, per, a man who loves your wife as Christ loved the church, supported by the idea of, of dwelling with her in knowledge, Right? First Peter, um, there's another truth that's in the back of my mind that I can't recall. Uh, I think the steel trap needs some oil. But the point simply being this, husbands, you have some of us 50 years to do this. If, if, if in 50 years you haven't figured out how to love your wife, you've truly blown one of the reasons that God had you get married. And it's really is it. And all the change that it requires in you. If you're still always frustrated, if you're still always upset, if you're still always, it is not, it is your issue. You have bad theology. Because again, it's commanded in Christ. And you haven't quite reckoned what this is all about yet. You're not a real good theologian yet. Same thing can be said for wives in terms of respecting their husbands. Uh, learning to call them Lord, and as Sarah did, as exemplifying that. Um, you know, gals, you have the same amount of time. And if you don't get it, you miss the whole point of getting married. And, oh, the getting married was to have kids. Well, that's certainly a wonderful byproduct. But the spiritual reason is because you needed help growing in your theology. And, and understanding God in Christ. So, so you get the picture. You, you get the idea. Uh, the best wife is the best theologian. And that's right, husbands and wives, this is where you put your arms around each other and say, you're a real good theologian, honey. That's what you want. There you go, Tommy. That's what we're looking for. There shouldn't be like a little, you know, that's, remember, this is progressive. All right, this is progressive. So we're all working on that. So my statement about God, and really our text gives it here, and that is this, that God is holy. God is holy. This is a governing attribute of God. And uh, there are those of you out there who may beg to differ with me, but I'm always ready to duke it out with you. Uh, I do believe that uh, God has a, 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 I would call it a governing attribute. And, uh, and holiness is it. It is the, the aspect of God uh, in relationship to the expression of his goodness uh, that is preeminent. Uh, it's coupled along with truth. Uh, that's another a quality of God, uh, but it's not just truth, it's holy truth. It's, it is governed by holiness, and, and love is another one. And These are communicable. These are things that God helps you and I become, uh, but holiness is, is critical. God is holy. Peter affirms what all of Scripture gives witness to. 
but an extremely helpful context of believers scattered about and persecuted in 1 Peter, persecuted for their faith. They didn't fit in. And guess what Peter did not say? He did not say, in your modern culture, try harder to fit in. You see that? He doesn't say that. Verse number one, these are, uh, these are aliens. They're scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. They're chosen of God, but they're scattered. The culture has really no place for them. And, and the goal isn't to, to keep becoming more and more culturally competent. That's, that, that's not the goal. That, that may, in fact, need to happen for our discipleship mandate, but that's not what is being spoken of here uh, at all. Peter's saying, no, we don't try harder just to fit in. No, we've got to learn to make our practices be consistent with our philosophy and our philosophy to be consistent with this high theology, this truth that God is holy. Holiness, what does it mean? Well, uh, in, in the Old Testament, at its foundational root, it means to be set apart from the ordinary or common use or to be consecrated. So it has this idea of being set apart for a special use. It has this idea of separation at the very core of it. Um, both the Hebrew word and the Greek word, uh, using the Septuagint, carries the idea of separation. And originally, or, or we see passages in the Old Testament where the term has no moral overtones at all. It's simply saying this person is separated out for a special task. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn over to Genesis 38, Genesis chapter 38. And here we have that infamous passage about, I believe, Tamar. Um, uh, is it Levi, right, I think? Yes, no? Is it Levi? Or no, Judah, I'm sorry. Uh, 38 and um, uh, uh, verse number, let me get it here, uh, 21. And your translations probably say something. And he asked, this is Judah speaking, and he asked the men of her place, uh, uh, saying, where is the temple prostitute? Remember, this is referring to Tamar. We're not going to go into all the, uh, just, just the crazy things that are going on here. But guess what the Hebrew word is for temple prostitute? It's the word kadesh. It's the word Holy. It's the word set apart. So here we have a, the word used with no moral overtone. The reality is, is that there were women in a pagan cultures who were set apart, kadeshed, for these practices. So, so sometimes it's used without moral overtones. Throughout scripture, um, uh, 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 remember when, when um, God told Moses to take his shoes off at the burning bush because he was on what kind of ground? There's no moral overtone there. The fact is, is that ground had been set apart. And so in that circle, God set it apart to be separate. And so, take off your shoes for Pete's sakes. Uh, uh, um, all the tabernacle furniture is going to be called holy, separate. But there's no, no, no furniture has any ability to be moral, per se. But, but that's a critical idea of, of what God requires. There's this whole religious practice concept in all of the Old Testament that demands separating out things for special service. It's not a moral issue in that sense. 
So buildings are called holy. Ground is called holy. The laver in the tabernacle is called holy. So this basic idea of separation, though, as we transition throughout the Old Testament, was easily made to the idea of moral purity, a separation from that which is sinful, unclean, or bad. So as it was applied to God as revelation progressed, it applies to God in two ways. It applies to God in the sense of his majestic transcendence, that he is holy, he is separated from everything else in his creation. He is the only, we use this word, he is the only necessary thing in the universe. You're not necessary. God is. We are, we are the theologians teach us that we are Beings who are relied upon, who rely upon the one necessary being. We, we don't have life in ourself. God does. God does. And these are the expressions of his holiness. And then it becomes also to describe his separation for all that is ethically unclean. What we know more practically to be holy. It, it's moral uncleanness. So it becomes that. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, to the point where the Bible reveals that God's eyes are too pure to look at sin. So it starts out as sort of this separation idea with no moral overtones, but because it has that separation quality, it becomes a word that's very useful in helping us to understand not only is God majestic and transcendent and separated physically in space and time, but he is also, it serves us well, separated from anything evil or morally wrong. Um, so this is God and his holiness. God is holy. So God is all of these things. And then finally, a word about holiness. Holiness is an attribute, and I want you to mark this down, of the goodness of God. When theologians break out the attribute of God's holiness... The question of God's greatness or God's goodness, it's always listed under God's goodness. Now that's a little ironic, isn't it? So what is good? It is God's uh, holiness that is good. Let, let, just real quick, Psalm 119. I'll, I'll try to help us see this. Uh, Psalm 119. Why do theologians say that holiness is an expression of God's goodness? Psalm 119, verse 65. We have this section where we have this interplay between the spoken, written commandments of God that proclaim his holiness and his demands for his people to be holy. And in verse 68, they're summed up as what? Thou art good and doest good. When you command us to be holy, you are doing the highest good, God. Thank you. You know, we don't look at holiness that way, do we? We don't. We can say it this way. We would not know the definition of what is good. Not only good to be enjoyed because it's morally good, but also uh, just goodness. 
We would not know what it is to be good if God were not perfectly holy. We don't often think of holiness as an expression of God's goodness. We often think of it as an expression of God's demand and judgment. We tend to recoil from holiness, thinking that it is unattractive or unattainable. So it all, so all it yields is frustration and judgment. And folks, if we apprehend God's holiness this way, we are not apprehending it as it truly is. Holiness is an expression of God's goodness. Well, how is that, Pastor? Well, we need to apprehend holiness on God's terms. At the end and core of human self-righteousness and holiness is often hypocrisy, embarrassment, wrath, judgment, and hatred. This is not holiness in God. At the core of his holiness is what? It's a commitment in love to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, has made possible for you and for me redemption. So when we plummet the depths of God's holiness, we plummet the depths of God's love for His Son, Jesus Christ, and at the very heart of it, at the very core of it, is not wrath born by you, but wrath born by the loving, fairest, Lord Jesus, and redemption. As pastor has been talking about, not only being redeemed, but enjoying the, blessing, the blessed fruits in our life of that redemption. Walking away from all the issues that have complicated our lives so horrifically. Uh, Hebrews chapter uh, uh, 12, verse 14, if you want to look there. So that's, we, we run to holiness because in running to holiness, we're running to Christ. And in running to Christ, we, we run to the possibility of redemption and of growth and of relief to the mind and comfort to the soul because King Jesus will change your character and he will make you more holy. He will. And it shouldn't be that difficult if we're doing it one baby step at a time. You know what I mean when I say it's difficult. I understand that. But, but it shouldn't be like, you know, whoa, out of left field for us. So holiness is an attribute of God's goodness. It's good that God is holy. And it's even better that he not only commands us to be holy, but he's given us the ability to be holy. When we were born again, he gave us a new nature. He gave us his word. He gave us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So when the Bible says, hey, look, it's not a good idea to take heroin. Don't do that. Romans 12, 1 and 2, your body is, is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Don't do that. You now have the capacity and the ability to say, oh, wow, that's a great idea. And because Christ lives in me, I've been redeemed. And as I'm confronted with that holy standard, it's not, ah, it's thank you, Lord. I need that. Now, that's uh, an issue probably that none of us are having, hopefully. But there are issues that every single one of you are having in your human relationships. And until you respond this way, until you seek holiness because God himself is holy, 
your life will always, you know, it's sort of like that old jalopy that just kind of sputters down the racetrack. And then it tries to get going again. No. The Bible says mount up with wings as what? Run and don't be weary. Walk and not faint. And we're not talking about triumphant, victorious Christian living here. All we're simply saying is as God confronts you with an issue in your life, to be holy and to thank him for that and to begin the difficult disciplines, disciplining ourselves unto godliness that that requires. So theology is the most practical of all studies. God is holy, majestically separated from all his creation and separate from all evil. God's holiness is the definition of all that we know to be morally good. The degree to which we progressively know God is the degree that, is intent, that his intended goodness will grip our lives by bringing relief to our minds and comfort to our souls as we are conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, who, oh, by the way, is nothing if he is not impeccably holy. That's your destination. It's not your comfort. It's not your felt needs. Your destination is holiness. And uh, it's, it can be hard sometimes. It can be hard. But God will help us. And he's given us all things pertaining to this process. So tonight, can I encourage us to replace, and at least theologically, from a theological perspective, one simple lesson is let's replace an overabundant consumption of culture. And there's, you know, a social media world, you live there. And let's take a GLBI class. Ha, there it is. I always get it in. I always get it in. <laughs> or a T3 class or attend your Sunday schools. We've got some great teachers in our Sunday schools. And learn more and more about the holiness of God. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. And uh, we pray that you would help us uh, to be holy. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to perpetuate a witness and a testimony in our community that God is holy and we need to be reverent and uh, we just pray you'd help us Lord to consume knowledge of God uh, uh, rather than being efficient consumers of culture Lord help us to not be culturally incompetent Lord you don't ask for us to be frumpy and out of step in that sense but but Lord our love our passion our longing is to know you God all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen.